Hi, this is the Reverend Craig Swan, the priest at St. Peter's by the Sea in Narragansett, Rhode Island. And I'm happy to welcome you to the first in a multi-part series of lectures on finding balance in difficult times. This first lecture is by the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley, Bishop of Rhode Island. And his topic for this lecture is Science and Religion. Can we have a conversation? Bishop Nisley is uniquely qualified for this conversation as he holds advanced degrees both in physics and in theology. I hope you enjoy this lecture and will join us for other lectures once a month in the months to come. So I, I feel like I should sort of tease that out a bit and, and Craig went online to find that bit about me. I was, uh, I was a high school student when I became a Christian. Right? Well, technically I became a Christian on Christmas Day in 1960 when I was baptized at St. Stephen's Church in York, Pennsylvania. But I became a Christian in an intentional way when I was a sophomore in high school and I was reading the Bible because I thought that was one of those books that you should read. I kept hearing references to it in all the other literature I was reading at the time. And I thought, well, I should probably just read this book. And I was reading it, I, I remember exactly where it happened. It was on Lamppost Lane and on the school bus. And I was reading in Exodus and it was the account of how God was leading the people of Israel in the wilderness as a pillar of cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And something just clicked in my brain and I just decided I needed to take this seriously. And I, I didn't know what else to do, but that was the moment when I decided my faith and my Christianity was going to be an integral part of my life. And I got off the school bus and I said, I guess I should probably stop swearing as much. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what to do with it. And I was involved in a church youth group and I decided I wanted to become a member of the clergy. And I told my youth group director that, and I told uh, Pastor Zimmerman that, and they all just thought this was wonderful. It was a Lutheran church at the time. My family sort of bounced back and forth between the Episcopal church and the Lutheran church, depending which one was closer to the house we were living. <laughs> it was actually a kind of lovely thing. We just went to whatever church was close to home because it became a real part of our lives that way. And both my mother had grown up next to a church and my father had grown up next to a church in separate cities, but it was their life. And strangely enough, it seems to have worked. There's four children, uh, three of us are ordained, and my youngest brother, the black sheep, um, is a doctor, but he's not clergy. <laughs> um, we, but, you know, there's hope. Um, and my family wasn't terribly religious, it just was something that we did. But when I was a teenager, I also started getting involved in churches. And I don't know if you've been involved in church governance or church leadership at all, but I discovered that people in churches are just mean sometimes. <laughs> I mean, really mean. <laughs> I mean, pro-level mean. <laughs> and as a teenager, that was, right, that was shocking to me. I was seeing adults behaving in ways that I wouldn't expect my fellow teenagers to behave. And I did not see them acting like the Bible seemed to indicate people should act. Now, I've learned more about the Bible, and now as an adult reading the Bible, I'm not at all surprised by how people <laughs> acted in church. And in fact, according to the biblical models, they were acting pretty darn good. But 
as a teenager with a high level of detection of hypocrisy, I just decided I couldn't have anything to do with the church. So I never really lost my faith in God, but I didn't want to have anything to do with the church. And so this all happened sort of my junior, senior year, and we were looking for colleges, and I got into Franklin and Marshall, and I was accepted at Franklin and Marshall as a dual major in physics and drama. And so I went through the program, and I ended up with, a gra uh, I graduated with a, a major in physics and a minor in math and astronomy and a minor in modern dance. <laughs> uh, that's one of those things people don't know about me, and I've, my wife and I really met as dancers, and she was a ballet dancer, and I was a modern dancer, and we did a lot of choreography together, and I don't do much of that anymore, <laughs> except on church on Sundays, a little bit, because uh, it always strikes me that liturgy is a kind of dance. It's, it's movement in time, deliberate movement in time to music, and that's kind of a lovely thing. I graduated, and it was the height of the Reagan recession in 82, and there wasn't a whole lot you could do with a bachelor's degree in physics at the time, and even less you could do with a minor in modern dance. <laughs> so I applied to graduate school, and to everyone's surprise, I got accepted, and I got a, a, a fellowship and a stipend. Uh, so I thought, well, this is all right, I'll do that. So I went on to graduate school, and my master's degree is in uh, relativistic cosmology. I was working on quantum mechanics inside black holes, and somewhere out there in an obscure article, people referenced the Nisley equations. Um, and if you're trying to do solutions to the Sitter uh, equation inside a, a positive de Sitter space, I got your equations for you. <laughs> and, and I realized that probably wasn't going to feed my family, so I switched tracks, and I ended up in experimental physics. It was the University of Delaware. DuPont was very strong there. They had a really good chemical physics department. And so I switched to chemical physics and worked on phase transitions. And I was doing reentrant pneumatic liquid crystals and looking for, uh, we were studying isotropic phase transitions. Uh, it was back in the day before Dijen got the Nobel Prize for phase transitions. And we, the thing about phase transitions is they all exhibit similar behaviors, whether they're happening in ice and water, or carbon, or complicated systems, or simple systems. They all do the same sort of thing, and no one understood why. And so we were working on trying to understand that. And I took my, my doctoral exams, and what I do remember very clearly is having passed my doctoral exams, waking up the next morning and going, oh crud. <laughs> Because I was going to graduate and have a career as a physicist, and it was not what I was called to do. It was something that I backed into. And it's something I could do, but it wasn't something I was terribly interested in. And I didn't know what I was interested in, but I knew it probably wasn't that. And simultaneously, my wife, uh, had to, she had gotten a job in a museum on the other side of the state. We were in Delaware, so that was all of eight miles away, <laughs> literally. And uh, we, uh, we joined the church in the village in Old Newcastle, Emmanuel uh, Church in Old Newcastle, Delaware, and they had a choir. 
And I sing loud, and, and Karen wasn't able to stop me singing loud one Sunday. <laughs> and so they invited me to sing in the choir. And so we joined the choir, and I, I started going to church again. I hadn't gone to church in a long time, but started going to church again. And while I was there, I got involved in, in street ministry and working in soup kitchens, working with homeless people, working with uh, getting uh, abused women into sort of stable housing. And I was astounded by how fulfilling that was compared to what I was doing in the lab, which was zapping a soap bubble with a laser beam at high pressure. <laughs> and I just, you know, some people, that was fulfilling. It wasn't for me. What was fulfilling was the relational work with people on the street. And it became clear as things went on that I had made a wrong turn at some point in my life, and eventually I found my way back into the church. I'd like to tell you the church that I was part of in that graduate school life of mine was the kind of church where they didn't have that kind of conflict like I'd had in my high school years, but oh no. <laughs> this was a highly conflicted church where they, I mean, it was a big fight. The church had burned to the ground. A marsh fire had happened. The steeple caught fire. The church, it was a 1689 church. Huge fight about how to rebuild the church and people, uh, one of my favorite people had had a heart attack over the, the fights over the church and gone in the hospital. But somehow, I was older, and it, the scandal didn't bother me in the same way. And so went off to seminary and, and blah, 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 here I am. Um, I wondered for a long time what I was gonna do with all this science background that I had. I, and as Craig pointed out, I, you know, it's funny, I, I was president of the audiovisual club in junior high and in high school. <laughs> And it's, I spend a whole lot of my life still doing that kind of work. I just find those kinds of machines interesting and easy to understand. And I've been involved in computers from the very beginning, and I thought a lot about how we can use technology to more effectively communicate within the church and, and to do the work of the gospel. And I thought maybe that was going to be the extent of my uh, career of as my, my background as a scientist, how I would use it in the church. And then when I got to uh, Bethlehem uh, in Pennsylvania, I found out that they needed someone to teach astronomy at Lehigh in the afternoon. Priests aren't very busy in the afternoon. <laughs> so I said I'd do it, but they had to trade me. And it happened just after the shootings at Columbine uh, in Colorado, and I said, if you pay me and I can use that money to hire a youth group leader for my church, then I'll teach physics and astronomy at Lehigh. And, and they, they didn't care what I spent the money on, and the vestry thought that was fine, and the other deal was that I, I didn't have time to change. So if I was gonna teach at Lehigh, I had to be sometimes dressed as clergy. And, and it was fine, and, and we did that, and I taught there for seven years, and every year the freshmen would come in and they'd look at me and they would say, wait a second. <laughs> and we'd have this conversation and they'd say, you know, what, what, what's your thing? And I'd say, well, I'm the Episcopal priest, I'm at Trinity across the river, and here I am, and they say, oh, what kind of church is Trinity? They say, it's Episcopalian, they say, oh, Episcopalian, or whatever, and <laughs> I, I think I'm that. <laughs> I said, great, That's a, come over and help us at the soup kitchen. The, the church and the physics department were on either end of a road that was called the Penny Bridge. And it was called the Penny Bridge because back in the day, you had to pay a penny of toll 
to get across it. And our church had been founded in what was North Bethlehem, right where the Moravians were, because the children who wanted to go to Sunday school didn't have a penny at the time to pay the toll for the bridge. They built the church so the children on the north side of the river didn't have to pay the toll to go to Sunday school. And I would drive back and forth across that bridge, and it was really interesting because I would start in the morning as a priest, and I would you know, lead worship, and I'd work in the soup kitchen, I'd be thinking theologically, and then I'd jump in my car right after lunch had been served in the soup kitchen, and I'd drive across the Penny Bridge, and I'd park, and I'd run up to my office, and I would start thinking like a physicist. And it, I really had a, a, a sense that I had a shifting of the way my brain worked. And, and I was aware of it, and somehow crossing the bridge, one side the other, I, I had a different kind of, I was a different kind of person on one side of the bridge and a different kind of person on the other. Um, someone had spoken to me about the two realms of snow, and it, it felt like that, that I, on one side I was living in the realm of theology and faith, and on the other side I was living in the realm of science and determinism. And that lasted about seven years, and I, I, I will tell you that towards the end, I started to forget sometimes which side of the bridge I was on, <laughs> which was interesting, because I started talking religiously in the physics department, I started talking scientifically in the church, and people thought that was interesting too. And then I was called to be dean of the cathedral in Arizona, and the church was growing. Um, I had been there about two years, and the people in the church came and said, uh, Dean Nisley, would you please teach a class? We, we really want an adult education class. And I say, I don't have time. I have three services. There's just one of me. You know, we're, we're almost to 400 people in church on Sunday. I, I barely, and I made a joke. I said, you know, I could teach a physics class. <laughs> and they said, oh, that'd be great. Do that. <laughs> they called my bluff. <laughs> So I said, fine, I had, a, I had a textbook, it was called Physics for Poets, I really liked that textbook, and I said, let's, uh, if you're serious, I'll, I'll teach physics class, and, and they were, they, went, they all went out and bought the physics textbook, and we started talking, and it was the first time I ever had taught a physics class in a church where I got to begin to speculate about theology and, and think through, because I had just come from the pulpit about an hour before and, and from worship, and there I was in a completely different context. And I discovered that over the next year, I started to integrate parts of myself that I hadn't integrated before. And I'll talk a little bit more about how this worked for me, but I was starting to have this kind of religious, religious language showing up in the way I was thinking about science, and I was having this sort of, um, scientific way informing the way I was preaching. I, I wrote a book about that, you called me to be bishop, and I wrote some more books on that, and here we are. So, along the way, I've, I've done a few other things with this, um, and I, I tend to give talks like this not infrequently. Let's see if I can do this. All right, that's the flammarian. That's my interstitial slide. <laughs> So it's just a fun slide. I love the image. It's from the 19th century, but it's of a person who's looking at the heavenly spheres, and he sticks his head through the sphere of the fixed stars and sees behind the gears and the machinery of the cosmos. 
And I've always thought of science that way, and frankly, I think of theology that way, that they're both attempts to understand deeper truths, to sort of peer through the, 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 the philosophers, uh, uh, the accidents of our lives, that'd be Thomas Aquinas, the accidents of our experience, to see what's really going on behind them. Now, I've given this talk, or these kinds of talks, off and on for the last 12 years. And I was joking with some people when I came in that the age, there's a certain age that skews here. <laughs> I, I gave a talk like this at the University of Rhode Island and I was thinking, oh, it'd be great, I have all these undergraduates there. There were no undergraduates there. There's people your age there. <laughs> they heard about it and they all came. And, and I think that's really important to notice that this is, this question of can science and religion be in conversation with each other? Are they in conflict with each other? is really a generational issue. And, and the latest polling shows that. Boomers, both here in the United States and in Europe, are people who were raised in a time when there was a clear conflict between scientific language and theological language. And, and it's been kind of a scandal for them their whole lives, and they have spent a whole lot of time trying to figure out how do I square this circle of I have certain moral and theological religious beliefs, and I also know there are certain things that are scientifically true. How do I make those two things work out? Your grandchildren don't care about this at all. <laughs> Only about 6% of them think it's worth mentioning. Only 6% think that evolution is not true because the Bible says it's not true. 94% of people, especially the latest data I've seen is out of, out of the UK, 94% of people under the age of 50 in the UK have no trouble at all with science and religion. So I just want to sort of mark that out because I, th and I'm going to say some more about where this conflict comes from because I'm not going to be able to solve the conflict for you. What I want to do is point tonight about where I think that conflict's coming from and help you maybe to understand the kinds of questions that are being raised, and you to decide do you want to participate in the conversation or not. All right. Um, now I've got, all my things are going to sleep on me, so give me a second here. 6% um, of people in the UK think that evolution is uh, absolutely true, and, and the, uh, I think that the Bible is true and evolution isn't true. It's actually a little bit different if you do a larger scale study in the United States. About 40% of people in the United States tend to question evolution because they think it's in conflict with the Bible. So you've got 6% in the UK and 40% in the United States. And again, this is data that I was just looking at this week. That's striking. In the same way, it's striking about who comes out to these kind of talks. I mean, it, it, there's a clear there's a clear population skew in that. And as a scientist, I'm going to ask myself, why is that? When you see something that's remarkable, that's the best part about science. When you see something that's remarkable, you go, I wonder why that is. And, and then you come up with a hypothesis and you test it and everything else. As a theologian, you might look for a book on it or something like that. As a scientist, you, you, you start wondering about it. So I have wondered a lot about it. And I think part of it I'll explain, uh, comes out of uh, regional differences. Some of it comes about because 
the issues of science and religion are a much bigger deal here in the United States than they are in much of the rest of the world. And they're a big deal here in the United States because of these things that we like to call wedge issues. <laughs> One has just surfaced, I wrote this, by the way, before this morning. <laughs> so, I, but, but this is a classic example. Um, when I was in Arizona, I had some people who worked for the state legislature, and we were talking a lot about how the legislature in Arizona didn't work. Um, I was ultimately, they, the legislators got the clergy in Arizona, and they trained us to be political lobbyists. Uh, and so we talked a lot about why the legislature in Arizona wasn't working, and part of it was people were very thoughtful and intentional about dividing the electorate and they would find things that divided the electorate. Spanish in schools was a big thing out there. Um, education reform was another big thing out there. Immigration reform was another big thing out there. And they would try to identify. I remember once, years ago, I saw that President Clinton had come out strongly in favor of school uniforms. <laughs> what? Why is the President of the United States making a statement about school uniforms? And I read further in the article, and it turned out that that, was, that stance was enough to convince voters in a particular county in Kentucky to support him in the election. And he could carry the state because of that. He had very good political data, and he knew how to divide the electorate up and get people to vote for him. That's how politics works, right? Fair enough, right? That's, that's how it works. So people have figured out how to use these wedge issues in a way to uh, manage to build coalitions to get things done. Not the things about the wedge issues because they don't actually want to solve the wedge issue because it's an important tool for building enough voter block that you can keep things going. You, you need to keep people indignant. <laughs> You need to keep people indignant so they'll go to the polls. And you need to very carefully, and there are people who do this for a living. This, I hope this isn't news to you. Um, but there are people who do this for a living and spend a lot of time on it. Some of those things are things like climate change, right? So I, I had a young man from Trinity College in Hartford interview me today. And he wanted to talk to me about climate change and what I thought about it and wanted to talk about the religious questions of climate change because he's been doing research in it and he's discovered that there are people who are opposed to the idea that climate is changing and they're quoting religious sources. And there are people that are saying the climate is changing and they're quoting scientific sources. And he said, how do you as a scientist and a religious leader manage to, to get those two things? Um, so we, we had a conversation about that. And the, the, you know, one of the big questions, of course, with climate change is what's causing it. You know, scientifically, you can, it's pretty hard to deny the temperatures are going up. The question is, what's causing it? Is it human-caused climate change? Or is you know sunspot cycle or uh, volcanoes? Or is the sun starting to get warmer? What's going on? And it may be some combination of all of those things, but the net result is it's going up and people can divide us in one way or another about that. You recognize Dr. Fauci, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? We've had big fights about vaccination. And it's striking in this country that you can see COVID hotspots and lower vaccination rates in places that have predominantly voted for one party 
and a different outcome in places that voted for a different party. So the way science has been understood and the way people talk about science is being mediated by their political leaning as much as it is kind of an absolute understanding. It's become a really useful political issue. I don't know that the vaccination started off this way. There was other conversations about vaccination. It just all got caught up and we stopped being able to have a public health conversation and we started to have a political conversation. And I felt bad for the people in public health, but as a religious leader who's been at this for 30 years now, I, I, I recognize exactly the echoes of what was going on. There are lots of other kinds of political wedge issues. Um, questions about gender. How many genders are there? Do you know what the rabbis used to say at the time that the Talmud was written? Six. Six genders. And you can see in the Talmud itself, uh, in one of the Mishnahs, a conversation about which gender was Abraham and which gender was Sarah. Just, it's more complicated than we tend to think. It's an enlightenment idea that you can have yes or no without other states. And, and a lot of that gender language is now getting caught up in it. What is it to be to trans? What is it to be post-trans? What is it to be intersex? What is it to be queer? All of those questions are deeply related to both a religious view and a scientific view. There's questions about race. Did you know every human being who is alive today is descended from every human being that was alive in 2600 BC? And every person with Western European descent is descended from every person in every person in Western Europe who was alive in like 1500 something, right? We're all a mixture and not even that long ago, right? There's no idea, we just, the race language that we use is a political construct. It's not scientifically or genetically true. And yet it's gotten wrapped up in religious language as well. It's become a wedge issue. Uh, it, it functions pretty well as that. Uh, gender orientation, or, uh, gay marriage versus uh, uh, heterosexual marriage versus other kinds of marriage has all gotten caught up in that as well. And of course, the one that sort of erupted this morning is the question of abortion, right? When does life begin? That is both a religious question and it's a scientific question. And you have different answers depending which sources you're using. And it makes a, a wedge issue that people are using. One of the things that I saw in the news just before I came down here was concern by some of the leaders in Washington that if the SCOTUS decision that's been leaked is in fact what the SCOTUS decision is going to be, they're going to lose one of their most effective political wedge issues to organize people and get them to the polls. This is actually what's going on. So in America, where we have a democracy where people have figured out how to tranche up the electorate into their voting blocks that can get their support, this is a much bigger deal. That's why you see 40% of people in America versus 6% of people in Europe are feeling this way. It, it, it's, it's really quite striking. It leads to world, a difference in worldviews. There's a materialist worldview, which is kind of the atheist understanding that this is all we have, this is all that's here, and kind of a hyper-spiritual worldview that none of this actually matters, this is all an illusion. Some of that shows up in climate change. Do you remember James Watt? 
uh, Secretary of the Interior, I think under Reagan. Watt was a, uh, uh, um, a, a pre-millennial post-trib. I, I don't speak evangelical that well, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I, 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 my, my brother and sister are both evangelical clergy, so I, I don't know they have the language exactly right. But they believed, and he believed, that God was going to cause the end of the world to happen soon, and when the world ended, we were going to get a new earth. So it made sense in that belief structure to use up all the resources because it was an act of faith that God was going to give us a new world. I've, I've talked to people who are uh, young earth believers who believe the, the earth is only a few thousand years old. I say, well, what about the dinosaur bones? And, and to them, the dinosaur bones are ways that our faith is being tested. Do we believe what the Bible says or do we believe what we see with our own eyes and measure scientifically. It's that same conversation, and, and it's confusing <laughs> and frustrating. You get a materialist or a spiritualist worldview. Um, and then, you know, so we've got these culture wars going on. We've got these tranches of the political system. Frankly, other nations <laughs> have figured out how to exploit our divisions. Um, I, I don't want to out anybody, but I was Occasionally I get invited to conferences over at the War College and I go over and I listen and they're, they're trying to figure out how to talk to religious people in places of the world where religious belief is driving some of the armed conflict. And I was talking to them about uh, what was happening in America and saying, gee, it just seems like somebody outside stirring the pot. And they looked at me really funny. <laughs> like they knew that. <laughs> I know that look. My mom used to give me that look. <laughs> Uh, we, we've, ex we've opened ourselves, the, the culture wars, the science of religious, the, the, the uh, belief that there is a, uh, a conflict between science and religion is being exploited in the political world and it's being exploited uh, to divide us. And, and I, I frankly don't think that's helpful. <laughs> and and I, think we're the, I think we are weaker for it. Is it possible to be a scientist, and a person of faith? Yes. <laughs> That's the proof. <laughs> That's members of my religious order. So after my name, you'll see SOSC, Society of Ordained Scientists. Society of Ordained Scientists is an Anglican, mostly Anglican Episcopal religious order. It's about 150 of us, people who are professional scientists who are also ordained. I'm, they keep me around as a mascot. <laughs> because I'm, I spent most of my career as an ordained person doing pastoral ministry and only teaching as a sideline. Most of the people in that picture are professors at significant universities. Um, uh, James Polkinghorne, uh, who some of you may have heard of, a very famous uh, particle physicist, was one of the founders of the Society of Ordained Scientists. Uh, there's about 150 of us now. The, one of my dear friends, uh, who used to be head of the order, is an astrobiologist. Um, he did his PhD at Harvard, and he's an Episcopal priest. I've kind of mentored him in the priesthood. He's helped me with astrobiology. He's working on the meaning of life questions, and he had a he was working up at MIT with that. Pan Conrad, who's the present head of our order in the United States, the woman priest, Pan, is uh, at a church outside of Goddard Space Flight Center. She's the principal investigator on two packages on the Mars rover 
that are presently doing. So in the daytime, she's a priest. At night, she sits in the laboratory getting data in from Mars, and she's looking for life on Mars. She's an astrobiologist as well and looking for signs of that life. Um, just a lot of wonderful people in those pictures, uh, people I'm very close to, and people who are MIT professors, Harvard professors, uh, teach all over the world. Um, we joke about it, we're the proof. <laughs> I mean, as if it was just one or two of us, that would be kind of unusual, but there's a lot of us, and there are other people who've not decided to take on the religious discipline of being in this order. It's a real religious order. We have a rule of life. Part of our rule of life is to interpret science to people of faith and to interpret faith to people of science. So when uh, Father Craig asked me if I'd come and give this talk, I was like, oh, it's kind of my rule of life, I have to. <laughs> So don't tell anybody else, because they keep bugging me and I have to do it. But, but it is what we do, and we talk about ourselves as being that proof. It is possible to live both lives and to do it with integrity. All right, so just let me just tell you that. And it's different for each one of us depending on what kind of science we're doing, depending what kind of faith life we're doing. It's, there's not, this is the formula. You do A, B, C, D, and you will resolve this. It, it depends if you're doing physics, it depends if you're doing geology, it depends if you're a computer scientist or a sociologist, if you're a doctor, uh, a medical doctor or whatever. They have different ways of doing it and when we're together, besides our common life of prayer for each other, we talk about how we are reconciling it in our own lives. The fact that there are sometimes conflicts, to me as a physicist, isn't a scandal at all. I, I'm a physicist. I live in a world where I have to do quantum physics when I'm in a small regime, and I have to do classical physics when I'm in a macroscopic regime. Those two ways of doing science are completely opposed to each other. They give completely different answers to questions, and both seem to be true. It just depends how you're looking, right? And, and if you're looking in a macroscopic way, you'll see a macroscopic classical physics response. If you're looking in a quantum physics way, you'll see a quantum physics response. We don't know why that works. We don't know how nature knows we're looking at that scale. And, and that's a huge question. That's the Schrodinger cat paradox is actually about that question. How does the cat know we open the box so the cat knows to be dead or alive? <laughs> That's the question, right? That's what Schrodinger was pointing out to, to Einstein in, in that paradox. And we don't really know the answer to that. And, and there's a lot of hand-waving and multiple universes and wave function collapsing and all that. But we just kind of, it doesn't matter. The math works out great. And I can make transistors. And I get really cool things with transistors, like <laughs> iPhones. And so we don't really worry about it because the math gives us the same answer and the philosophical stuff we leave up to people worry about that kind of thing. Scientists are comfortable with paradox. Religious people are comfortable with paradox. So people who do science and religion are comfortable with paradox. It, it's not that hard once you decide you can do it. And that's kind of the big, if you have one big takeaway, I want you to take home is that the conflict between science and religion is primarily being pushed in a particular cultural way and it's being used in a way that divides us. It's not, in, it's not inherent in any significant way more than there's a conflict, uh, I don't know, between uh, English and chemistry. 
right? I, they never asked me to talk about, they have English professors and chemistry professors debating <laughs> because that's not an interesting conflict. But science and religion seems to be an interesting conflict. And, and that's an, why is that, you might ask? Well, I have an answer. <laughs> And I started thinking about this as I started giving this talk in different parts of the country. When I give this talk in New England or in the Northeast, people will listen to me because of my scientific background. I mean, they think it's fun that I'm a religious leader, uh, but they're much more interested in my scientific background and, and that I know what I'm talking about scientifically. When I give this talk in the South, they listen to me because I'm a religious leader. And my scientific background actually raises suspicion for them because they wonder if I'm an expert and experts are treated with kind of skepticism. And I was really struck by that. Um, in the same way I'm struck by the, the general age of people who come out to these kinds of conversations, I was also struck by the, the difference regionally between the two receptions. And, and that led me to wonder a lot about what might be going on. Well. You can see it, actually, in, in, in sort of everyday things right now. Um, this question about, uh, it showed up particularly in the vaccination battles, this question about skepticism towards scientists or whatever. This isn't just true about science or religion, it's, it's tr and it's not just north and south. Actually, uh, Nate Silvers has a big piece on this about two days ago, and I found it really interesting. What he argues is the, the dichotomy in the United States particularly is between people who consider themselves rural and people who consider themselves urban. So it's not just north and south, but it's different cultures, a rural culture and an urban culture. And a rural culture tends to prioritize common sense knowledge. You know, what's the common sense solution to it? Um, Do you ever hear the joke about, you know, we needed to figure out how to write in outer space and America spent millions and millions of dollars to build the Fisher space pen, a pressurized cartridge that can write in space, and Russians used a pencil, <laughs> right? It's a great story, it's not true. <laughs> you can't, you don't want, I mean the Russians did use a pencil, but as soon as they get their hands on a Fisher space pen, they went with the Fisher space pen because graphite shavings in zero gravity float around and get into places where there's electricity and they spark and cause fire. And in a highly oxygenated space capsule, a fire is catastrophic, which is why we invented the pen, right? But, but that idea of, haha, the common sense solution versus that crazy expert who spent all this money and came up with a very expensive solution that wasn't that helpful. That, that kind of dichotomy is the kind of dichotomy you're hearing in the rural urban dichotomy according to Silvers. And that was what happened in, if you listen to the language of people who were vaccine hesitant, they'll say things like, I have an immune system, why don't I let my immune system do it? I had a flu, I had, you know, why should I? They would say, they would have good questions, but they weren't listening to the better answers because the better answers were coming from experts. For them to hear what the experts were saying, the experts had to speak to them in a way that showed that they had the ability to listen to them. When I do these talks, and when I do them in the South, I, I do, I talk about my religious faith, I talk about how I came to believe, because that gives me credibility to people and they will hear me. Sci same thing, if I'm talking to a bunch of scientists, I talk about my scientific background and my research, and that gives me credibility and listen to me. It, it kind of works the same, it's just shaded different. 
But there is very much this difference, and, and it is primarily regional, but it is rural and urban. And that rural and urban dichotomy in the United States, well, it comes from the Civil War. <laughs> um, so much of America <laughs> and our division still comes from the Civil War. We, we never really finished the process of Reconstruction after the Civil War. And it's that unfinished work of reconstruction of the United States that is still impacting our society today. The book I was thinking I was going to write, but I didn't have to write because Mark Knoll wrote it for me. Yay, all hail Mark Knoll. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. Um, the Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And, and he puts the roots of how theology and science began to diverge, and he puts it very squarely in the 1820s. And the question was over enslavement. And was there biblical justification for enslaving another human being? Uh, you, you say no, but if you read the Bible, and you read the Bible in a straightforward way, the Bible has a lot of language about how slaves are supposed to behave. They're supposed to listen to their masters. We just heard that in church the other week, right? They're supposed to listen to their masters. They're, they're supposed to suffer, especially if they're being treated unjustly. They're supposed to pray for their masters. And you hear that again, you, you, have, you can't take uh, fellow Israelites as slaves, but slaves from other nations, sure, that's your business. And women slaves, concubines, that's fine, no problem. Um, one of the problems we've had in the church, it, if, if you're Episcopalian, you might know there's Eucharistic prayer C, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father. Yeah. So everyone's upset because it's patriarchal language, so you don't want to just say, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Jacob. You want to put the, the wives in there. So Sarah, Leah, and Rebecca. But what about Hagar? And, and, and what about the slave women and the concubine? And so you just we just don't use, I don't use prayer C, because <laughs> I can't figure a way to, it's all in there, right? And, and in the South, there were slavers who took the Bible, removed certain sections, and just gave them to the enslaved people that they were holding in slavery, and said, this is your new religion. And, 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 and we, you know, we're Rhode Island, we did it too. <laughs> especially here in the southern part of the state. But then there's the abolitionists. And the abolitionists also wanted to use the Bible, and they would look to the story of Exodus and the story of God freeing the slaves from Pharaoh. And they would look to the story of Philemon, and they would lis listen to the language. And what the, the abolitionists saw was that there was a meta-narrative throughout all of Scripture, and that meta-narrative was to free the slaves. And in the enslavement language, they look, no, I want to look at the literal meaning of the words because the literal reading of the Bible, at least in some sections, says slavery is okay. And what you end up de developing in the 1820s, 1830s, is two competing, and the, and the fancy word for it's hermeneutics, two competing ways of reading Holy Scripture, two lenses. And, and you'll still hear this language today, and especially in the inheritors of like the Southern Presbyterian Church, the Southern Methodist Church, you'll hear at Southern Baptist Church, you must read scripture in the plain, apparent meaning of what you see. And in other parts of 
church, the Episcopal church, will say, no, no, you need to read scripture as it's full of story and poetry and misdirection and we'll even quote what Jesus says, I teach you in parables so you won't understand. <laughs> yeah, he says, it's hard to understand. I'm, not e- I'm intentionally not being clear. Why is Jesus not clear? That's a sermon. You should come back and ask me to preach on that sometime. <laughs> I have a good sermon on that. But, but just the recognition that there are parts in the Bible where the Bible says it's being unclear. And there are other parts of the Bible where it says being clear. The Bible is not a consistent single book. It's 66 different books and written over thousands and thousands of years. And some of the words, we don't even know what they mean. We know that we know how to say them in Hebrew, but we don't know what they mean because they're so ancient that they're written from way before. And we're, are, we're just guessing in the same way even the rabbis at the time of Jesus, 2,000 years before us, were guessing what those words mean. So you have these two kinds of, of ways of reading things. A, 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 an originalist, if, if I was a um, constitutional scholar, I might argue you have to have an originalist reading of the Constitution or I might want to have a progressive reading of the, of the Constitution which builds on certain rights that are found within it. So much of our hermeneutics in biblical language is influencing the way legal scholarship is going, and legal scholarship is influencing hermeneutics. That's always been the case, but it's all coming out of this battle that was happening in the United States about whether or not we were morally allowed to hold people in, in chattel slavery. The Civil War happened, the South lost, the military battle, and frankly, if if you read the accounts, the South switched to a different way of fighting, and it's called the Lost Cause Narrative. If you're not familiar with the Lost Cause Narrative, I I encourage you to do some Googling about it because it's worth reading. But the idea is that the South lost the military battle, but they did not lose the cultural battle, and because Reconstruction didn't finish out with Lincoln's death and everything else, we are still in the middle of that that, that, that war, and we're still divided. And people have figured out that division is helpful. Um, this book on the Civil War theological crisis goes through the whole process, and then looks at what Europeans and European theologians were saying, and it's quite striking, the difference of language and, and the, the consistent view of the Europeans that slavery was wrong, and the split view in American Things. And, and that shows up now in the 21st century in the way our theological conversations go. And remember how I said that in the UK it's about 6% and 94% don't see an issue, and the United States it's about 40% uh, and 60% don't say it's an issue. It's a very striking difference. It's because of our story, and it's because of that history. One of the things I've learned as bishop, and it's been striking to me, is that structures persist in time. I didn't think about that that much, but, but I've learned that structures within a congregation, just the, the sort of the general culture of a congregation is surprisingly resilient over centuries. And if I can hear how a church that was founded in the 18th century in Rhode Island, if I can hear the story of their founding, it's really striking to me that they still are kind of living out that culture. And it's true for Trinity Newport, it's true for St. John's in, in Providence. It's true for St. Michael's in Bristol. It's it just striking to me that that sort of happens. So it's not surprising to me at all the United States is still living this out as well. Just about the time of the Civil War, something got published. Maybe you've heard of it. 1859, 
on the origin of the species. Right? Charles Darwin, who studied to be a deacon in the Anglican Church. Um, a large number of scientists in England were actually ordained uh, in, the, in the Anglican Church. Newton was ordained. Uh, he, was an, he was a deacon. So was Roger Williams, an, an Anglican deacon. Uh, Darwin didn't get ordained, but he wrote Origin of the Species, and what he argued for was random natural selection and not God-directed fate. And this created a controversy, and it came out in 1859, right at the time of the American Civil War, and after the Civil War was open, this controversy was able to be used to feed the lost cause narrative. And that's why you'll see in different parts of the country a particular way of looking at evolution versus, uh, and I see it, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, right? So uh, central Pennsylvania is very rural, and you've got Pittsburgh and Philadelphia on either side. And so you had two cultures in that state that were urban cultures and a very rural, different culture in the middle. And that still is playing out in the state. And in the middle of the state, evolution is looked at askance. And in the cities, uh, Carnegie Mellon, University of Penn, it's like, no, of course evolution is true. Um, it, it, it's really sort of playing into that. Um, just a side note, it, that question about random chance or intelligent design, it, it also actually plays out in quantum physics and classical physics. When, when the, uh, the, the German scientists were working in quantum physics, they were, they were really the, the ones who had the great insights. It was a great scandal to the Nazis, and they called that Jewish science, and they, they wanted to get rid of quantum physics out of, of all of that. It's part of the reasons that the Americans built the atomic bomb before the Germans were able to do it. A lot of the people who were working in atomic physics and quantum physics came to America because they were being rejected by the Nazi people. It, it, same thing happened in the Soviet Union under Stalin. Um, there was a scandal about there needed to be an, a story, a, a preordained story to human existence. It could not be random or at the I quantum level. The yes, thank you, Siri. I, uh, good for you. She just said she found this on the web. I know that. <laughs> I'm speaking about that right now. Um, so all of this sort of plays itself out and we get this artificial division between the two and it's cultural and it's in the United States and it is a generational thing as well. I think I, I'm, a, I'm 62 years old. I'm a young, I'm at the very end of the boomer uh, thing. I was born in 1960. Um, I grew up with atomic bowling and, and the space race and the idea that science was going to give us this cornucopia of delight, if I just trusted in the science and believed in the engineers. Um, and that was my childhood. And it all changed when the movie E.T. came out. <laughs> E.T. is the first movie I remember that was wildly popular that had scientists as the, as the bad guys. Remember, they wanted to cut E.T. apart and everything, and the children saved, the innocent children saved E.T. from the scientists who were gonna deconstruct him and everything. They wanted to have the story and the emotion and not the, the sort of laboratory experience. And I remember thinking, that really is kind of a moment when, when you kind of the end of science as the way out of everything happens, and people in the broader culture begin to question all that. Um, What do we do? Well, both science and theology are forms of applied philosophy. 
right? Natural philosophy is what we call science. And theology is using the tools of philosophy to ask questions about God. They're actually, they're siblings. And, and they're both children of philosophy. And, and it really is quite striking. If you've done any, any study in the history of science, you see how much scientists use philosophical. Einstein was as much a philosopher applying the, the insights of Wittgenstein in a mathematical way as he was a geometer and everything else he did. And you see the same thing with Barth and some of the great uh, theologians of the early 20th century using the same kinds of tools from philosophy and applying them. We're just playing things out. There are different truth claims, right? Science will make one set of claims about truth and religion makes another claim. Uh, do you ever hear of Karl Popper? See, I have this picture there, Karl Popper. Uh, Popper is probably the best definition of science that anyone's come up with. He, he's a logical positivist who was uh, mid 20th century. Popper says science is that which can be falsified. So astrology, is astrology a science? And you say, well, no, but why? How can you say it's not a science? Astrology would have to make a prediction that we can test. And if it can be tested, then it can be science. If it, can make, if it can't make a prediction that can be tested, then it's not scientific. And that's how you can decide that art isn't science or you know, other things like that. Art, to, you know, toy design is not science. And, and certain things like geology or chemistry or biology, those are scientific. And, and Popper's definition is actually really powerful. Um, he's, he's, he's saying elegantly what Galileo argued to the Pope a long time ago, that when there is a debate, the ultimate decision-making in a debate has to be the laboratory. That was the Pope's beef with Galileo, and Galileo was kind of a jerk to the Pope, too, but, um, but that was the real beef, was Pope was saying to Galileo, we can't just say the lab is the, the experiment, the physical, material world is the only way that we can answer questions. There has to be a, a metaphysical, a spiritual way of thinking as well. Um, and Galileo refused to agree with that. And that was uh, what got him confined to the rest of his life to the second floor of the Pope's palace. It was not a very terrible imprisonment. Religious truth. How do you decide what's true in religion? I, no one's ever actually answered that question that I'm aware of. Um, I keep hoping someone will. Uh, generally, the way I think we think about truth and religion is we look to see whether or not a statement is being made is consonant with the tradition or the earlier teaching. So if I were to say, Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, you would say, but that's what the Bible says. And, and so you'd say, well, what you're saying isn't true because we want to compare what you're saying to the, the, the revealed books of the Bible or the ancient tradition. And, and that's not a bad way to do it, but it's... How do you decide which books? Um, another way, I've thought about this a lot. I've got three answers to it. I don't know if I have the right answer. Another way is the idea of the survival of an idea, kind of a theological Darwinism. Some idea, there were lots of ideas that were floated in the first four centuries theologically. A lot of them just sort of fell by the wayside. You can argue that that's because the, the, the emperor in Rome put military might behind some of the ideas and that becomes the Nicene Creed and there are other things that are ruled out in the Nicene Creed. And, but 
you know, it wasn't like the, the Pope or the Emperor said, this is what we all believe, and everyone all believed it. We can see the conflict happening for centuries afterwards, but eventually one, re, one way of reasoning wins out. And, and you might want to say, okay, it's a kind of theological Darwinism, survival of the fittest. The best answer wins in the age. It just takes centuries to figure that out. Um, my favorite answer to how do you decide if a religious statement is true or not, as opposed to like in a lab where you can measure it, is fruit of the tree. Jesus calls it the fruit of the tree. If I hold this faith, this idea, is my life transformed? Do I live a different kind of life? If I live a different kind of life, well, gosh, that's probably something worth doing then, right? If that's the reason my life has transformed. So what we have is two cousins, descendants, uh, uh, children of philosophy, that are using different tools for discriminating yes, no answers. And, and so there's gonna be a little conflict between them because they have different ways of, of answering questions. So does English lit and history, right? It, we don't get anxious that the English professors and the history professors do things differently even though they're both writing papers. Arts and engineering, right? The art department doesn't get particularly upset at the chemical engineering department, right? Science and religion has been a bigger issue, but my argument for you all tonight is that's a, that's a historical accident as much as anything else. It's not true throughout the Middle Ages. It's not true for much of the Renaissance. It becomes particularly uh, puissant, I love that word, puissant in the 20th century because of the failure of Reconstruction after the Civil War. Can there be a conversation between them? Um, yeah, actually. Um, St. Augustine of Hippo writes this wonderful book in the, in the fourth century on the, uh, the literal meaning of Genesis. That's the title of his book the literal meaning of Genesis. And, and people are making claims about the world and Augustine's going, ugh. Because the Romans knew that the world was round. The Romans knew that we orbited the sun. The Romans knew that the moon orbited us. They could see the shadows in eclipses. They had this all figured out. They even knew how big the earth was. They, they'd figured it out by, by uh, geometry. And Augustine says that Christians need to, be, need to know enough about science that we don't make fools of ourselves by claiming that the Bible is saying something that's just nonsensical. The Bible, the Dalai Lama says something very similar in modern Buddhism about this, that if Buddhism were to say something that science proved not to be true, then Buddhism would have to reevaluate what it said. And it's the same sort of thing within faith. If science is able to prove that the physical world is different than the Bible explains it to be, then we have to understand the Bible's not talking about a physical thing, it's speaking in a poetic way and we have to understand it in a different way. And, and that happens all the time. We don't think it through, but, but that's actually pretty common for us. And it goes back to Augustine, who's making the, that explicit argument in that, and, he, and he's cautioning the church, look, don't embarrass God, <laughs> don't make, don't say things that are gonna embarrass God when you're talking to scientists. Aquinas uh, later on says kind of what I've said, uh, both are searching for truth. Both scientific inquiry and theological inquiry are searching for truth, and truth is, we know the name of truth, right? What's the name of truth? I'm speaking as a religious person, so I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> it's always Jesus. 
right? I always wanted to go to a Star Wars convention <laughs> and say, so, you are a follower of the Force. <laughs> you are a Jedi, and you believe in the Force. I know the name of that Force. <laughs> His name is Jesus. <laughs> That's what we believe. That's what we believe, uh, the name of, the, of, of wisdom, the name of light, the name of love. We know the name that is, is found in the person of Jesus. Aquinas is saying the same thing. If you are searching for truth, whether you're searching for it scientifically or you're searching for it theologically, you are searching for the same person. And, and that should be celebrated and, and welcomed and, and, and actually should be cooperated with as much as possible. Um, what does it look like in, in point? Well, most of the work that we do right now is in moral theology. Moral theology is applied theology, and that's frankly where we're coming down right now with a lot of the question about who gets vaccinated, how do we vaccinate, uh, questions of beginning of life, marriage. These are all moral theological questions. They're not pure theological questions. They're applied theology in the same way that applied physics is engineering. Uh, and, and these are the, the questions where we're really sort of working it out. And if you're interested in, in pursuing this, I encourage you to read about medical ethics because that's where this is happening in real, in real time in a real and practical and thoughtful way. Medical ethicists, people who have sat on medical boards are trying to bring spiritual understandings of, of what it is to be human, on the dignity of human life, and they're having to apply it with, okay, this is what the oncologists are saying, this is what the, 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 the research is showing about the ability of this disease to be beaten. We have a limited number of these uh, 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 medical regimes we can give to somebody. How do we decide who gets the treatment and who doesn't. Right, that's medical ethics. That's, that's where this is living itself out. So it, it's actually really happening, and it's happening in good and thoughtful and careful ways. And we just don't talk about it that way. Because again, we keep focusing on the political stuff. And I have just talked for an hour. <laughs> and I didn't ask, let you ask any questions. Uh, and my, my point about the knowing the name of the force, knowing the name of truth, all that, when, when Paul, St. Paul in the book of Acts goes to Athens and begins to meet the, the great philosophers of Athens, do you remember the story? He goes to the Areopagus. I love that word, Areopagus. He goes to the Areopagus and he sees an altar off on the side, an altar to an unknown God. And Paul goes over to that altar and says, I know the name of this God. Men of Athens, let me tell you about the truth. And I have a feeling that's kind of where we are in all this. In fact, we are searching for the truth. We know who the truth is. We're just experiencing truth in different facets and different forms in our lives. Um, so that's my argument. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs>
that really moved you in a spiritual way. Oh, yeah. And can you say more about that? So I remember when I was teaching physics and astronomy at Lehigh, and I was thinking about this, I remember one night waking up at 2 in the morning in my bed and recognizing the fact that I was essentially a random assemblage of protons and neutrons and electrons that had been created in the Big Bang, that had gone through the universe, had assembled into the, the pattern that they are now in me, and that this random collection of things, ash, from the fires of the Big Bang was able to contemplate itself and to perceive the universe around us. And I just, I was so stunned by the fact that these, these broken pieces of the universe could perceive the universe. And, and that made me start wondering about consciousness and everything. I've, someday I'm gonna write that up, but. <coughs> it was really powerful, and, and I was just, I had this overwhelming wave of gratitude just wash over me that, that night, and I've never forgotten it. Um, and every now and then when I'm outside looking up at the sky, um, I, I get that same sort of, that sense of wonder, not so much at what I'm seeing, but that I'm seeing it. And that I can perceive it. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. And the whole question of consciousness is a whole other thing. Sir. Um, having worked with a company that was involved with the Hubble telescope, advances in the telescope, but especially the James Webb, and how many billions of light years going back to that period. I've just kind of a, uh, really a way out question, but where was God? Is God there at all these billions years away? No, it's not a hard question at all. It's a good question. Um, so, buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> My, my, so my daughter asked me a question regularly. She said, Daddy, when I die, what do I do for eternity? I'm gonna be bored. And, and the answer is, there's no such thing as time. And, and that's, I'm not speaking theologically, I'm speaking as a physicist. <clears throat> time is an emergent property that comes about because of the entanglement of space and gravity. And so to your question about where was God all that time before, God was in the eternal now, and that time before is the same as the time in this moment, is the same as the time in the future. Augustine talks about that. He says that God exists in the eternal now, and that we live in a bubble of temporal experience. And in physics and, and cosmology, that's called a block universe. In a block universe, you have a, a, a temporal region surrounded by a, a region of no time. So it turns out that we've reasoned our way to the truth. And, and the, a friend of mine who is the uh, uh, president of the creation something, something, something out in Berkeley, it's a big deal, he's very smart. Um, <laughs> uh, I can't think of what it's called. At any rate, his father died when he was 12 years old. And he's a physicist and a theologian. And he always wanted to know, was I actually see my father could I hug my father again? And so he worked very hard on this question and then has looked deeply into the question of time. And if time is only something we experience in this part of the cosmos, 
And when we move into the eternity, then everything is now, and the physical bodily resurrection becomes scientifically and mathematically possible. And so his answer was, yes, I can hug my father. I can hug my father again. And, and not metaphorically, but in a physics way that makes sense to him as an astrophysicist. So, I, I take great comfort in the fact that, Hip, that Augustine of Hippo worked this out, Bloch has worked it out, and, and uh, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of the work that we're doing right now at the surface of black holes, at the, at the Schwarzschild horizon, which is where time stops in general relativistic language, it, it helps us answer that question as well. Like I said, buckle up. <laughs> I, I was interested when you talked about uh, the Northeast and the science and the southern part of mm -hmm. the country, more the religion accepting your mm -hmm. teaching of physics and right. religion. And um, do you see that in the future combining, or do you think that the wedge is still being driven very seriously between these two philosophies? So, if we look at Europe, the younger generation doesn't see this wedge, and this wedge makes no sense to them. Right. I think you see the number similar in the United States, but to a lesser degree. So there's still a wedge with the younger part of the United States population, but it's much less than, say, our generation sees it. So I think it's declining. Now, that assumes that it's allowed to sort of burn out like a fire. If you keep throwing logs on the fire, the fire keeps burning. So if we feed this conflict, the conflict's going to continue. If we can step away from the conflict, I think the conflict will die out. I had a question about some of those comparisons. You know, Europe and the U.S. are kind of homogeneous when you think about it. Mm. How about some of the other cultures? They're, they're, not, they're not even asking these kinds of questions. Wow. So Indian thought is very different. Chinese thought, again, is very different. They're, they're working out of a different kind of worldview. Um, part of it's one of the biggest, I mean, with, with Hinduism, they believe the universe is eternal and unchanging. And so for them, the Big Bang is really an affront to their, their understanding. And, and uh, early on in the theories of the Big Bang in the 1970s, it was the Indian scientists who were arguing for the steady state model and having to figure out how do you have the redshift and the motion that we're able to detect in the, in the Big Bang. And they came up with uh, spontaneous creation of matter. Chandra Sekhar was very active in that, which turns out to actually have some interesting applications. In, in dark matter. So they've used the math, but we've worked away from it. Um, but it's just, it's not the issue it is. Um, in Africa, people who have been exposed to American evangelicalism, science and religion is a bigger issue. It's, it wasn't until recently a big issue in Islam. Um, it is in sort of Wahhabism becoming a bigger issue. It wasn't for sort of the older, uh, more traditional expressions of Islam. Speak wisely. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, as a, uh, a researcher and a person who, who writes about the nature of scientific knowledge, mm -hmm. a lot of what you say in your language resonated with me. Um, oh, good. I was wondering if, if some of your thoughts have come from that uh, literature. In that. 
Uh, yes, as a matter of fact. Um, um, some of it's my own sort of thinking, some of it's my research on it, and some, the sort of question of epistemology, how do we know what we know? Yeah. Kuhn? I'm sorry? Uh, Kuhn, yeah, oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the nature of scientific revolution, um, right. Um, having, I used to assign that as one of the texts in my classes. Um, I don't know, that, so there's some question right today about whether or not the paradigm is as sort of overwhelming as, as Kuhn would argue, but I do think there are these moments when we come through. And uh, in theology, we talk, uh, Phyllis Tickle sort of worked off the, the, the thinking of Mark Dyer, uh, who was an old, uh, earlier theologian, and this, about every 500 years or so, we have a rummage sale in the church of old ideas. <laughs> I, I, you know, honest to God, I, I, went, I have a degree from Yale Divinity School. I can tell you the answers to the questions people were asking in the 14th century. But the thing is, no one's asking those questions in the 21st century. Justification and salvation, all that. So things that really mattered then don't matter to us now. And we've got a new set of questions we've got to answer, and the church is still answering questions that were being asked 500 years ago. We're in that rummage sale moment, and it's kind of exciting. I think that's what the transition around us is happening. So that's that paradigm is beginning to emerge again. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you. Thank you. Before we break for refreshments, I do encourage everyone to please come join us for refreshments. The table is heavy laden with lots of goodies this evening. There's uh, beverages as well. Just to make, bring your attention to a flyer that we passed out on your way in, because our next talk in the series will take place on Tuesday, June 7th, and it'll feature Dr. Patricia Markham Risica, who is a professor of public health at Brown University, and her topic will be public health, taking care of everybody. And it should be equally as enlightening, as, as exciting <coughs> as tonight. And Dr. Risica happens to be with us this evening as well. So uh, please, mark your calendars for this as well. And thank you all for coming out for this. And again, please join us for refreshments and conversation in the parish hall.